Jeanette here from Jeanette's TV. I'm at the Elevate Tech Conference in Toronto. And what a conference this is. Four days of incredible learning, all kinds of very high influencers in the digital and tech industries, from fashion to food and everything in between investments, health. We have so much great coverage coming at you. Please stay with us. Good afternoon. Well, I can't think of a better uh, next guest for this event and for you at this moment, and certainly to follow that talk, uh, than Dan Doktoroff. Because if we're talking here at Elevate, as we are, about the, uh, the congruence between how we live, between culture, between technology, these are not separate topics anymore. And when we build cities, we do need to bring them together. Uh, Dr. Off, of course, as you may know, certainly everybody from Canada will know, is the CEO of Sidewalk Labs, the alphabet company that's reimagining the development of part of a part of Toronto. And it is in process, so it's iterative. Uh, he continues to rethink it and rework it, but it is a big picture process. It's not just about a piece of land in Toronto, it's vision about how cities can work everywhere. He is, as you may also know, the former deputy mayor of uh, New York City, and there was responsible for some of the biggest urban planning and thinking around infrastructure and technology and how a city can work in its history and possibly in the history of cities. He's also been uh, the CEO of Bloomberg LP, full disclosure. Uh, I don't think was ever my boss, but that is the company that I now work for. Um, and so uh, as he comes here to Elevate, uh, it's a chance to talk to him about some of all of these issues, thinking about cities, thinking about technology, how they fit together, uh, and asking some of the key questions. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Dan Doktoroff. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. I know you're here a lot because Sidewalk uh, is ongoing and you're in the middle of this, this process. I think one good place to start is, because even for people that know it's happening and uh, are from Canada, is just to catch us up on what's happening. There's a plan, there's a master sure. plan put forth. Where are you with Sidewalk? So, um, as, as Amanda said, we're trying to develop a part of the waterfront, doing it in conjunction with the government as a result of huge amounts of public input. We released the plan, um, which by the way, if you're interested in the 1,524 page plan, uh, you can go to sidewalktoronto.ca, but we did that at the end of June. Now we're working with um, the uh, government entity called Waterfront Toronto, which itself is a creature of the three levels of government, hopefully by the end of October to have sort of a uh, broad understanding on the key business terms. If we are successful in doing that, then we'll move forward ultimately to formal Waterfront Toronto approval and then city council approval and then relevant provincial and federal approvals next year. So it's a, it's a long drawn out process, but that is what you expect with something that really is so unprecedented like this. It's complicated. And so talk about some of the things that make it unprecedented. And one piece of that, if we go kind of level up, again, it's a conversation you keep having in Canada. People from outside of Canada may be less familiar. But the kind of why Google? Well, what Alphabet uh, wants with this kind of thinking? What, where do those pieces fit together? Yeah, it, it, first of all, it has nothing to do with Google's business model whatsoever. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about data and privacy in a little bit. Yeah. I'm sure we will. <laughs> Everybody else seems to. So uh, 
but, but this really has nothing to do with it. This, this came from Larry Page, the founder of Google and CEO of Alphabet, has believed for a very long time that we're at a moment in time when this convergence of a set of technologies can fundamentally bend the curve if applied correctly um, to almost every aspect of quality of life. And we all know cities are struggling. Uh, in some ways, we've been, in many cases, too successful. And we have to find ways of making cities fairer, making them more affordable, making them easier to get around in, making them more sustainable, et cetera, et cetera. And we think, he thought, and we think that there are a set of approaches that can actually do that. And the best way to demonstrate that uh, is by literally building a district or a neighborhood in which you can combine all of the different elements that go uh, into making a city, mobility, so infrastructure systems, buildings, the way the public realm functions, even social infrastructure, um, and demonstrate what's actually possible. So it's really said not a not really a, there's no direct relationship with the rest of Google's business model. One, one place I want to start, and the, I mean obviously we'll get to the data stuff and then this may get us there, but one of the themes of this conference um, and one of a growing theme of all of our lives uh, is inclusivity. And I know it's a word that you use and that it's part of the design, but I have never quite understood what it means in the context of the city design that you're imagining. Where, what, do, what do we mean by a more inclusive city? Well, what, what we mean by it is that everyone can potentially live there. Okay, and then when they're there, they can basically be their best selves. And there's, you know, inclusivity is sort of one of those words that has lots of different meanings, sort of like sustainability. But that's for us is what it means. So on some level, you even start with the question of affordability. Um, and we all know that our cities are increasingly unaffordable. I look back at my experience in New York, and I'd say the biggest failure we had was that under kind of in our time in government, the city became less affordable for too many people. Um, now, how do we do that? And we know, by the way, cities, politicians, and then developers are gonna be under pressure to actually make cities more affordable and fairer. Uh, how do we do that? Well, you know, it's not gonna come from government throwing more money at it. They don't have the money. Um, it's not gonna come from developers actually taking lower returns because at the end of the day they got to earn an adequate return on their money. We have to, in effect, figure our way out of this dilemma. And we think the answer is something that we call affordability by design. Right, so what does that mean? It's the way we construct buildings. So on this site in Toronto, we're proposing that all of the buildings be made out of mass timber. So it's a, the world's oldest technology, but it's also a new technology using wood for the structure of buildings that happens to be more, um, more resistant to fire than steel, uh, dramatically more sustainable for many different reasons. But most importantly, when you use some of the new technologies like robotics, when components are made in factories, we think we can lower the cost at scale by 20% and reduce the amount of time to construct a building by up to 35%. That savings can then be redeployed in terms of creating affordable housing. 
But it doesn't just stop there. There's a lot of other ways we can create affordability. Um, we think about space in completely different ways. How do you make a 500 square foot apartment feel like it's actually 700 square foot? Well, we actually just invested in a company called Ori with IKEA that makes robotic furniture. So a closet can serve multiple functions. It can collapse when you don't need it and create a larger living room or bedroom. Now, if I can actually save people kind of 200 cost of 200 square feet without their sacrificing the experience of living in a bigger apartment, that is a huge, huge benefit. So there's not one answer to any of these things. It would be nice to say there's like one press the button, magically we have an inclusive community. It's literally dozens of different approaches that cross all these different systems in an urban environment that are gonna be necessary to create this kind of inclusivity that I think we all want. We, we've talked um, over time about this project and from the time Sidewalk was beginning to conceptualize in Toronto uh, to today, the conversation around data privacy, uh, transparency, uh, you know, it has moved from, in a way it was kind of a side, you know, was, you know, are you selling our stuff? We're not really sure. Even the tech companies have come along. Now they're in Congress. Uh, now the EU wants to talk to them. So in the context of that, the backlash, and I, we can call it backlash on sidewalk, has been it's a surveillance society. You want to use all our information. It's against our will. Um, and I know that you've responded to all of that. It, can, can you work within this context? Yeah. Will, will we allow you the data you need to make the city work? We think absolutely. The fact of the matter is we don't really need um, very much um, personal data. Um, and what we've actually proposed uh, is that we don't want it. In fact, let's vest control of that data in a government-sanctioned, independent, urban data trust. Um, and if there are types of personally identifiable information that we think could add value and help improve quality of life, we have to apply for it. And if we get rejected, we're happy to accept that. Um, in fact, what we are seeing is governments around the world are starting to really think seriously about this approach, and we think it makes a ton of sense. We have also said very clearly that whatever data or privacy regime governments actually enact, we're perfectly happy to live with it. This is not about sort of personal data. This is about data like weather and the monitoring of stormwater tanks so we can effectively manage stormwater, which was one component in our strategy to actually get this place to climate positive. We can get to climate positive, we believe, on a cost-effective basis, meaning we'll be exporting clean energy uh, back into the grid from this place. The first time I think that probably has ever happened. Do you think we're going about the conversation the right? <laughs> Pause for applause. Do you think we're going about the conversation the right way? Because you were in government as deputy mayor, you know how you know, the sausage gets made on regulations. On uh, it, Are we coming at it through a back door when we say we want to build this? Does the data work? Or should we actually be sitting down and saying, what do we think about all of these issues? And then go to developers and say, this is the landscape you have to work it. Because we're kind of forcing you to make the rules as you go. 
yeah, well, first of all, we're not making the rules. We're relying on government at the end of the day to make the rules. We're suggesting possible approaches. Um, and if we can act as a catalyst to that happening, I think that's a really good thing. Sometimes if you wait without that catalyst for government to do things, um, a lot of great opportunities get missed. Uh, the real magic occurs when the public sector and the private sector are sort of aligned um, and work with kind of their respective responsibilities and talents to produce something extraordinary. I hope we have an opportunity to do that here in Toronto. We have, despite the criticism and occasional um, frustration, I think overall we've had a terrific relationship with all three levels of government and the steward of this project, Waterfront Toronto. So, it's hard. This is, this is really hard. We're trying to innovate on almost every level, you know, from a technology perspective, uh, from a regulatory perspective, from a financial perspective, from a policy perspective, um, and doing it out in the open in real time, and it's hard. I mean, it may be the hardest thing that I've ever uh, tried to do. Which is saying a lot, because you've done some hard things. Um, we were talking earlier about, I didn't mention it in um, the introduction to Dan, but he did lead uh, the bid, 2012 bid for the Olympics for New York City, um, and didn't win. We lost. Uh, obviously. If you didn't notice, the Olympics they, they never were in held York. in New York. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, you made a really interesting point, and it made me think if there's a parallel to what's happening with Sidewalk, which is, it didn't, you didn't win, but you did a lot of things because the bid was happening. You rethought New York because the bid was happening. In other words, you used it to your advantage in a positive way. Yeah, I mean, you, you asked me before, have I ever experienced failure? And the answer is yes, on like a huge global scale. But, <laughs> but you know, the reality is, and I think this is a really good lesson for everybody, um, is that, you know, failure is what you define it as. And as you point out, the Olympic bid, which I worked on for 10 years, um, ultimately became sort of a plan for the physical future of New York, which Mike Bloomberg and I carried into City Hall with us. And then we used the deadlines, even a bidding for the Olympics, to get major projects approved in record time. Things like Hudson Yards and the High Line and the regeneration of the waterfront all over the city. Um, and so, you know, when we lost, we'd already had those things approved and moving forward. And so, yeah, I could look at it like it was like this monumental failure, which on one level it was. I could also look at it and say, you know what, without the Olympic bid, um, we wouldn't have developed this plan. I wouldn't have met Mike Bloomberg. I wouldn't have had a chance to be deputy mayor. We wouldn't have a chance to have done all these things. And the reality is the Olympics last for 17 days but the high line lasts forever. And so I chose to define it as a success. Which kind of leads to me to wonder what success might look like for sidewalks. If the moonshot is everything you want, and the reality is something, some components of that, what's the, what is that reality? Well, there, there's about? success here in Toronto, and that's having a... Uh, a project that really does help to redefine what urbanism, inclusive urbanism, can actually be. Um, but we won't consider ourselves successful if it ends there. 
we believe we're in this moment in time when we desperately need to figure out new ways of living in cities. And so the ultimate measure of success will be whether what we do here is replicable in other places. And whether we play a role in that, which we certainly hope we will, or cities copy what we've done, or developers in cities copy what we've done, even in parts that are relevant to them, and it spreads gradually throughout the world, that will be success. I, I, I was always inspired by the way cities copy other cities. Um, they're constantly looking for better ways to do things. Back in 2008, when we uh, first opened the High Line, at least the first segment of it, and it was really popular right away. And within a year, there were 36 High Lines under development um, around the world. A lot of them ended up getting built, and those first versions were all built on like elevated tra uh, railroad tracks that had been abandoned, et cetera. But what's so interesting is the grandchildren of the High Line have learned some of the basic principles that we first taught with the High Line, like adaptive reuse of archaic infrastructure, uh, really creative public-private partnerships. So here, I guess it was last year, a uh, park underneath a highway open called the Bentway. So it is a grandchild in some way of the High Line. And the team that led the rebuilding of the High Line actually consulted with the people here in Toronto. So that's what replicability is all about. It doesn't mean people are gonna slavishly like pick up what you do here and plop it down somewhere else. It means they're gonna learn from it and they're gonna adapt. And hopefully the place we create here in Toronto will adapt over time. We've designed it, we've architected it to be extraordinarily open, right? So the uh, data, digital infrastructure is open. The APIs are open. Um, the, uh, the, the ways of sharing data are designed to be open because at the end of the day, while we're the ones getting it started here, what you hope is people here in Toronto, whether entrepreneurs or companies or around the world, are going to build things on top of this and because we're not smart enough to ever anticipate the future. So these things have to be open and evolutionary. And I mean, one of the things that's so notable about the High Line or the Bentway is it's not high tech at all. Right. It's as low tech as it gets. It's, as you say, it's repurposing existing infrastructure. When we think about our future, and that can be true for ourselves or our companies or our cities, do we get distracted by, you know, it must all be, if it's not new and AI and shiny and the next thing, do we forget that sometimes the, that non-tech can actually provide a way? Yeah, look, if you look at what makes cities great, okay, it's the public spaces that connect us. Most of those are not technology enabled. They might have, you know, technology enhancements that make them more usable. Um, I live in New York right near Central Park, you know, which I think is one of the great public spaces in the world, right? It was built in the 1850s. Uh, there are now 40 million people who come there every year. Um, and it's evolved, but it's never been technology that's made it great. It's, you know, whenever we improve the, the human experience, we improve the city. If we can find clever ways of doing that, that leverage innovation and technology, that's great. 
But we should never, ever forget that it's about the human experience. It's not about the technology. And yeah, so sometimes I think we can get a little blinded by it. And I think the risk sometimes when we get blinded by it is we got locked into it. Cities, like people, you know, like have to evolve. And we have to make it as easy as possible to evolve as taste, technologies, and trends do. And that's the approach that we're trying to take here. And figured it out completely, but that's the, that's the basic draw. I imagine that'll continue. I mean, there has been a piece of your development plan that's been adjusted. You know, we talk, there's regulatory stuff, and you'll run into literal developers and financing, and that'll change it again. The, the human being element, how do you, are you designing that as you go? I mean, because well, when you walk in a place, it's different than actually imagining it. Again, that's why it has to be flexible enough so that at the end of the day, the people who actually live and work there have their ability to make it their own. It For can't instance, be ours. I don't know why you would ever want a closet to go away. It doesn't go away. Like, it doesn't go away. You just push it, closet. pull it out, and push it back but in. But when do you not want it? It's so full of stuff. You don't want it when you're not in it or getting something in it. Oh, I see. So I could show you the video. Like, so, so, so just imagine, okay, a normal closet's like this. There's walls here and walls there. You walk in to get something, that takes up space, that empty space in the middle. I see. If I can literally collapse that, the rooms on either side can be bigger. And, but I get a walk-in closet. You get a walk-in closet when you want it. Okay, gotcha. I'm glad we solved that problem. I was picturing some awful dystopian universe where your oh. closets go away suddenly. Remember, remember what I said, the, the, key, the key here is to give you more space without diminishing your quality of life, since obviously having a big closet is key to your quality of life. 100%. I like, like to hang out in there. I go yeah. in there. Then keep it open, but you're not going to be both there and in your bedroom at the same time. Okay. Um, Enough of that. I do want to ask you, I mean, anybody, it's, I don't know how many people here have been down, seen Hudson Yards, spent time there. It's magnificent. I think, I, I think so. It's magnificent. It's even more magnificent for anybody who spent time in New York back when if you went to that part of town, the police would stop you and say, what are you doing here? Go home. This is very dangerous. More but, likely you would have gotten run over by a train because it's built on top of train yards. Fair enough. But it was not a nice part of town. It no, was terrible. dangerous. Nothing. It was, um, are you, where does that rank when you think about what you might do in Toronto and what you've done in New York? How do you, this might be like comparing kids, but how does Hudson Yard, I always actually think your first is your favorite, if we're honest. Uh, I'm never going to admit that. You don't, okay. It's just a theory. I only have one. Uh, not one theory, one kid. Uh, I have three, so I'm definitely not going to admit, admit it. that. It's your first, though. Um, <laughs> it is. But how do you compare what you might do here to that shining example on the Hudson? Well, the role that um, I and we play is very different. Um, I may have had the vision for Hudson Yards um, and developed the plan for it, maybe found a creative way to finance bringing the subway to it. But at the end of the day, there was a developer who actually built it. Yep. Uh, we're playing a, a much more complicated role here. Um, in that with our government partners, you know, we're the planners, um, but we'll also be in part the developers. And we do hope to bring in a consortia of Canadian um, partners to kind of do this with us. 
Um, so it, it is different. I, I think that you know, the opportunity here because of this replicability aspect um, makes it, if we can be successful, and there's no guarantee that we will, I think significantly more important on a global scale. Hudson Yards was really important to New York. Um, and there are elements of it that I think may be replicable in other places. Uh, uh, so that's Is that a big motivator for you to think about that you're doing something here that's bigger than just, it's not a development, it's a concept? If, if, if it's only a development, then we will have failed. In fact, I'm not interested in only doing a development. We want to do something that not only changes the lives of people here in Toronto, but potentially is seen by others and acts as an example for other places and people around the world. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Dan Doktoroff. Thanks for being with us today on Jeanette's TV. I'm your host, Jeanette Burke, signing off. Please remember to like, comment, and share all our posts with your family and friends. You will find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Pinterest, Vimeo, YouTube, you name it, we're there. Hashtag Jeanette's TV. And until next time, continue to be fabulous.